So we made the final plan to do the question and answer period tonight, this morning. And sometimes when we're going to do a question and answer like this, we uh, let the yogis know the day before. So I had some curiosity whether there would be enough notes to, <laughs> to, to do a talk or, you know, whether there would be enough. And um, there were enough notes. <laughs> Uh, there were 31. <laughs> um, and uh, I just wanted to ask forgiveness if yours isn't um, uh, read. And there were a few that were related more to daily life practice, which um, uh, Mioshin's going to do a Q&A um, towards the end, so I'll give them to her so they'll get uh, dealt with. And one question is actually planted by the teachers. So uh, see if you can figure out which one it is. <laughs> that was to make you pay attention. <laughs> so I'll, I'll read most of the questions um, that we'll talk about. Not all of them, but most of them. So they're divided into um, different categories. So the first category I, I would call working with thoughts and emotions. So how do I work with repetitive thoughts? I already let them be. I do not resist them. So, And don't we miss weaker aggregates by basing our practice on being mindful of the strongest thing that comes up? Can metta and karuna practice be a skillful way to work with troubling thoughts that keep reoccurring? For example, can doing compassion lessen their occurrence, or is that too goal-oriented? How are we to understand working with strong defilements visit us in dreams? Can you describe in detail the process of investigation? It seems pretty common on retreat to experience a vast array of mental states. And then um, it's a long note, so just to summarize, um, she's feeling like she doesn't see them so much at home, so what's happening? Are they, are, is our practice not just revealing these states and their diversity and transience, but actually fostering them? So that's that set. So perhaps it's not surprising that there's so many questions on thoughts and emotions, because for many folks, it's some of the most challenging part of practice is how do we work with these minds that are turbulent and these hearts that have um, such a vast array of uh, mental states and emotions appearing. A number of years ago, um, the Dalai Lama came to Smith College near where I live and I managed to get a ticket. And uh, one question that was asked that stuck in my mind is somebody asked, What's the most important thing in life? And um, the first thing that impressed me about the answer is that the Dalai Lama said, well, it depends on who you are. And he's like, if you're a student, it might be this. If you're a business person, it might be this. But he said, if you're a serious Dharma practitioner, the most important thing is learning to work with afflictive emotions. So that kind of validates that if we're sitting here working with a little bit of greed, hatred, (laughs) uh, fear, um, that that's okay. That's really an important part of practice. And for some people, these um, 
emotions will be more intense, and for others it may be very subtle. So don't worry that uh, if you're not uh, feeling full-blown fear. But grasping, for example, an afflictive emotion can manifest as just a, contra- a slight contracting around an experience. So, so the vast array of how um, emotional states present themselves from very subtle contraction to um, overwhelming states that we completely lose perspective and get lost in. So we can talk a little bit more about how do we investigate thought. And I would think, say that one of the most important things about thought is to understand the difference between being lost in thought and being aware of thought. Now, a lot of times we think that we're practicing to get rid of thought. It's funny, no matter how many times we tell you that that's not what we're doing, it's still like there, right? That belief that somehow we are trying to get rid of thought. And I was thinking about that this afternoon, like why do we persist in that belief? And it might be because we suffer so much from our thoughts and um, they can be quite painful. And uh, perhaps that's why we we persist in thinking that um, we need to get rid of them. But really what we're trying to do with thought is to understand how it is, the nature of it, you could say. And one of the most intriguing things about thought is the difference in how we experience it when we're lost in it and when we're aware of it. So when we're lost in thought, we create entire universes that we then inhabit. And we believe them to be true. If it's an unpleasant universe, we suffer a lot. Um, It's kind of mind-boggling how entranced we get by our thoughts, really, when you think about it. So you're sitting here in this hall, and you could be miles away, right? in some universe that you've created. So your attention could feel miles away in some universe that you've created um, that you're then inhabiting, right? So when we're not aware of thought, we believe our thoughts, we think they're real, we think the reality that is created by our thoughts is real. So what happens when we're aware of thought? The most interesting moment, you could say, is that moment that we wake up, right? We've been lost in a thought. We wake up, we go, oh. (laughs) And we can just turn and look at the thought. It's like, what happens to it? How powerful is that thought when we're aware of it? When we're not aware, it's very powerful. You could say it's very opaque, real, and powerful. And when we're aware of thought... It's ephemeral, transparent, and not so powerful. I learned a lot about um, the thinking mind on one retreat where I had a lot of judging thoughts. Um, I was, I was uh, judging people pretty, pretty continually. It was pretty... Um, Unpleasant, shall we say. And um, I went into my teacher. I went into, uh, Joseph was my teacher then. So I went into him and I was complaining about what a bad yogi I was. 
Did I tell you this story already? No, okay, good. <coughs> Sometimes that happens, we can't remember which story we've told. So, um, you know, I, I went into Joseph, I was like, oh, I'm just judging all the yogis, you know, in the dining room, walking around, you know. That person takes too much food, that person walks too fast, that person makes too much noise, you know, just on and on. I said, I'm just, you know, I'm going nuts. And um, he just turned to me and he said, it's just a thought. And there was something, I must have been receptive in that moment, because I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> it's just a thought. And, um, and so then I started to relate to those thoughts differently. So I'd had a lot of aversion, and, and, I, and I was believing all the thoughts, right? When I started to notice it was just a thought, and I could be aware, it was like, it was no problem. So a judgment came up, I noticed it, didn't believe it, passed away, no problem. Now if I believe those judging thoughts, if I'm not aware, there's great potential to cause harm, right? I might be mean to somebody, I might you know, dismiss somebody, there, you know, it, it could be suffering, right? But when I just notice the thought, I don't believe it, comes, goes, there's really no problem. <coughs> So, so from bringing repeated um, attention to thinking itself, thoughts move from being very opaque, thick, sticky, believable, to being um, light, flexible, transparent. And then we can decide some thoughts are worth believing. You know, we do have to think. We, we do need to use our minds. Um, but we can use greater judgment about whether a thought actually has information that's useful or whether it's just suffering, not something we really need to think. If there's a repetitive thought that comes back a lot, um, it's not unlikely that there's an emotion present that is fueling the thought. So it can be useful just to check that out to ask, you know, is, is there an emotion present? And if there is, to be with that, with, with mindfulness. So investigating emotion with mindfulness means noticing um, how it feels in the body, if there's corresponding physical sensations, noticing how it feels in the mind. Is the mind spacious or tight, dull, alert, contracted, expansive? And we can also notice the kinds of thoughts that come up. We're not so interested in the storyline. We're much more interested in understanding what an emotion is and how it arises and passes away. And very similar to thoughts, um, when an emotion's present and we're lost in it, it's very powerful. It uh, can cause all kinds of havoc. And when we bring a mindfulness to emotion, it can just be an experience, arises, we're with it, it passes away, kind of like a thunderstorm comes through. So, so by bringing mindfulness to the emotion, we, we break the trance. Emotions are very, they hypnotize us very easily. We're entranced. They're the best hypnotists, right? Emotions. Emotions. 
So when we say that, that we break the trance of emotions, we could say that um, the clinging to emotions lessens or the attachment to the emotions lessens. I say the stickiness lessens. So um, emotions can be very sticky, right? It's like we just get, they're like gooey. We get in, you know, it's like you can't find your way out. <laughs> um, you're stuck, it's sticky. Um, but with time, it's like, they become pure. We just experience the pure energy of that emotion and it um, can come and go as everything does. And the question about um, whether we're going to miss anything by paying attention to what's predominant, I don't think we have to worry too much about that. Um, what happens for many people is over the years of practice, we find that what we attend to gets subtler and subtler. So we tend to the grossest, and then, you know, it starts to get subtler. But basically, um, there's a lot of time. <laughs> and uh, and uh, as, we, as we actually, um, you could say, get a grip on the, the more gross manifestations, then... Uh, the, the subtler manifestations actually um, have a chance to kind of rise up to the surface and, and we get to attend to those. So we'll get the whole gamut from uh, gross to subtle. So one of the questions was about using metta or karuna then with um, sticky thoughts or emotions. And so maybe if we've done um, an investigation, we've tried to be with the emotion with mindfulness, it's overwhelming, we're lost in it, we just can't get out, there's not a whole lot of um, benefit to that, to just being kind of lost in an emotion. So then if metta or compassion helps us to kind of regain some stability and come back to the present and... um, you know, balances us, then it's then it can be helpful to do. If it's if it's if always when a certain emotion or, or um, sticky thoughts come up, if always our our choice is to move away to um, some other thing like metta or compassion, then we don't get a chance to actually learn about um, the impermanence of mind states. And we don't get a chance to learn how to um, be with them skillfully. So, so it's it's good to have a little toolkit and you know different things for different times to really be able to see in our practice what's most useful. And again, like I said, if we're just lost and and overwhelmed, then it, it's good to take some more um, assertive steps to figure out how to. Uh, exit from that emotion and return to some balance. And so one question was a little bit about um, using feeling tone and more investigation using feeling tone. So let's say that lots of craving is coming up for some mental object. You're imagining something and it's very pleasant, lots of craving. You can um, be aware of the object. Oh, image, image, seeing, seeing, or thinking, thinking. You can be aware of the pleasantness. And you can be aware of the craving, if that's what arises in response to the pleasantness. 
So there's, there's really three things going on. There's a sense object, there's a feeling tone, and there's the um, reactivity, the aversion or craving. And so sometimes if something's tricky, we can move through those three objects and just understand like the chain of conditioning that's leading to reactivity. So like a knee pain, for example, um, there's, there's the sensations of burning or stabbing, and then there's the unpleasantness, and then there's aversion, right? So we can move between, you know, we can be with the bare sensations, or we can be with the feeling tone, or we can be with the reactivity, or perhaps it's possible there won't be any reactivity, in which case we can be with the equanimity, the, the letting it be as it is. So that's, that's a kind of investigation that we can um, do. And then if it starts feeling like it's getting really complex, then it's good to keep it simple. If emotions come in dreams, um, it's not actually so different than waking. It's, um, we still uh, would just attend to the emotion when we wake up. So uh, sometimes we can have really intense dreams on retreat and we wake up and there can be um, kind of emotional uh, residue. And sometimes if we don't like attend to that, it can affect our whole day. So it can be good to just be with that emotion mindfully when you wake up from an intense dream. Feel it in the body. Notice the texture in mind. Notice the kinds of thoughts. So there was a question about whether um, by being here we're we're creating or actually making more of these um, mind states come up. And um, I know it can certainly seem that way when we get quiet on retreat and um, we don't have our usual distractions in our daily life. Um, We can see um, a lot arises, right? A lot of mind states of very different types. And... um, It may be stuff that we've um, hidden from ourselves in our daily lives by being so busy. And it's um, good to see these, these different manifestations that come up on retreat because if it's hidden from us, it can cause a lot of harm. But also we don't, again, have a chance to learn, to develop wisdom. We might act it out. And if we actually um, see more truly what is actually going on in our minds and our hearts with mindfulness, then there's, there's more choice. And there's definitely the chance to develop wisdom and to understand how not to take <laughs> our thoughts and our emotions so personally, to allow them to be and to allow them to, to move on. Now we do have a... Um, a phenomenon I think you've heard of called yogi mind on retreat. And um, we don't have a lot of input coming in here, right? We're pretty secluded. And so sometimes if some, um, something happens, there's input or something happens, our, our reactivity can be a little um, extreme. 
we, little things can be quite, become quite dramatic um, and get exaggerated. My first retreat here, I, um, there was a guy who sat behind me who snored during the, the, the meditation sessions, and I um, got quite aversive, very, very aversive. And, you know, it was, just, it was really just hearing, hearing. It's just, you know, sound. But um, I got into yogi mind. I even went as far as leaving a note on his pillow telling him that he should take a nap. And um, <laughs> that's, how, that's, that's when yogi mind's gotten really bad, right? Don't do that. I'm, not suge- I'm suggesting you don't do what I did. Um, but it can become really intense, right? It's like we can almost lose control. <laughs> like, we're just going to go nuts if we don't somehow fix this problem. That's called yogi mind. And it's really good to recognize it. You know, it can help calm it a little bit if you're like, oh, that's yogi mind. We should move on. So some other notes were about um, remorse and forgiveness. I would love to hear more of your thoughts on working with guilt. It can be so closely connected to wise remorse. Seems like the more I practice, though, the more wisdom grows and the less guilt I feel. Also, what about forgiveness? I know it is part, it is not, anyway, what about forgiveness? Why is this not mentioned as a wholesome state? And then um, a list of how I gave to work with unskillful actions, a question about what that list was. So um, related to thoughts and emotions, sometimes when we're on retreat, old memories can come up. Um, And one specific category of memories that can come up are things that we did that we wish we hadn't done. Um, So unskillful actions that we have taken in the past. And when these uh, memories come up, we'll often feel remorse. Remorse means to rebite. So it's like we feel it again, and we feel that kind of, um, how do we describe remorse? It's that feeling in the heart that we know we did something that, um, that caused harm, and that wish, and the remorse is that wish not to do it not to do it again. So it's considered actually a very skillful mind state because it motivates us to clean up our act. It motivates us to um, try not to cause harm in the future. So it's an acknowledgement that we did harm and um, when we're quiet, uh, we get more um, sensitive to, to, to harming, to non-harming. Our hearts become more attuned to kind of the connection and love that we feel with all beings and, um, and our wish not to, not to cause harm. It's the, our deepest hearts is that wish to not cause harm to others. So guilt is when we make a whole story about this. So guilt is, um, I'm a bad person. There's a lot of extra added. It's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's heavy, no? 
I think with guilt and um, shame, which is very closely related, there's this belief that um, if we beat ourselves up enough, we won't do it again. Right? Guilt has this kind of whole story about that's really about beating ourselves up. We're so bad. And if we really tell ourselves that enough that somehow maybe we, we won't uh, cause harm again, it's not so effective. There's this practice in um, Tibetan Buddhism called the Four Powers, which is very helpful for me, I found, in letting go of um, unskillful actions that I've done in the past. And so the Four Powers are, the first one is we recognize that we did something unskillful. The second one is that we feel remorse. The third one is that we... um, do some kind of remediation, something either to make amends or something that will change the conditions that caused us to do the harm in the first place. And then the fourth one is we recommit to not um, not causing harm in that way. And what I love about it is, you know, it's like if you've done those four things, you've really done your job. You've done the best you can. And then you can move on. I'm trying to think of an example to give here. So if you wrote a note to a yogi, <laughs> we'll go back to that unskillful action of mine. If you wrote a note to a yogi, you'd recognize that that was unskillful. There'd be the feeling of remorse, that you feel bad that you did that. And then there'd be something to uh, change so it won't be done again. So maybe taking all the paper out of your room or, you know, I don't know what it would be, but something that would um, help make it more difficult (laughs) to repeat that action. And then the last one would be a commitment not to do it again. I'm going to say a few words about forgiveness, but I won't say much because you're going to get a whole Dharma talk on it in a few days. But related to this remorse, um, I think a lot about forgiving ourselves. You know, forgiving ourselves for being human, for being imperfect. There's a sense sometimes that we're not allowed to be imperfect. It goes very deep in most of us. And if we we trace it, it's, it's really, I find it quite fascinating. There's this fear that um, we're not good enough and that if we're not good enough, we'll get kicked out of the tribe and then we'll die. I mean, it goes that deep, I think, for most of us. It's not, not rational, right? But there's a sense that, um, that we have to be good enough in order to avoid being kicked out of the tribe and dying. It's very primal when we go down through all these layers. But when we go down through the layers of of the way um, of this um, inability to forgive ourselves or to allow ourselves to be imperfect, if we keep going down to the layers, what we touch there is our interconnectedness with others, right? It's very much about our interconnectedness with others and um, our vulnerability. And when we can touch that vulnerability, this is what makes us authentic and beautiful is that vulnerability within each of us, our uniqueness being ourselves. 
So practice helps us risk doing that, touching our vulnerability. It's like we have the courage here to not be perfect, right? And all of you who've been sitting here, you know you're not perfect, right? (laughs) It's like we have the courage to, to see that, to allow that to come up, to hold it with a great heart. And so sometimes when we can touch that vulnerability, then we can actually forgive ourselves and bring in kindness and compassion. And related to what I was talking about before, so when these unwholesome um, um, mind states arise, the ones that we think shouldn't arise, um, we learn not to take them so personally. So you and seven billion other people are working with aversion. (laughs) You and seven billion other people are working with craving or fear. That helps, doesn't it? Like, we don't have to take it so personally. It's just part of being human. We can forgive ourselves for being human. So moving on, there were three questions that were about um, living in this world um, as it is now in the um, current world uh, where there's lots of um, uh, climate change, social inequity, uh, widespread ecological destruction, great injustices. And what does that mean for our practice? What does that mean? How are we to respond to these um, conditions? So somehow I see this coming out of the last um, question about sila, so sila is like ethical conduct. So what is, what is our ethical conduct given um, the challenges of, of the world these days? It feels like a very hard time to be alive. And what I'm not so sure about if is, 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 is if it hasn't always been this hard. Um, I think that many of us Westerners have been kind of protected from what most human beings deal with. You know, war, famine, ecological destruction, lots of um, ecological disasters. And I'm not saying they don't happen in the United States, and some people in the United States don't experience some of these things, or in the West. But there's a way that, yeah, if you look around um, the world, or you read a lot, you know, a lot of history, um, being a human being has been a kind of tough, tough business. Um, I've heard that the national religion of the United States is optimism and denial. (laughs) So in some ways, we may just be joining the human race in the coming years. (laughs) And there could be some intense times coming. There are intense times already. It's true. So what what does this mean? How do we respond? Our sense of interconnectedness and compassion calls upon us to respond somehow, right? It's a natural movement of the heart. Especially as we um, create the space in our lives to hear our hearts, to hear what they say, to allow them to be touched by life and how life is right now. You know, we're often so busy 
in our daily lives that perhaps we don't actually leave the time for that. It's really important. So one thing I think is really important is opening to our emotional reaction or response to the truths of some of these very um, difficult conditions that are present and look like maybe coming more in the future. And so to acknowledge if there's despair or fear or anger or attachment with mindfulness. So the mindfulness is some protection from getting completely lost in these in strong, um, perhaps strong responses of the heart. So to acknowledge them and to notice when we are getting lost in them and to find balance. So back, we're back to working with afflictive emotions. But then also our emotional reaction, there's another um, side to it. There's also so much love and so much care. So that's there too in our hearts. And to bring mindfulness to that part of our response. And as Winnie said, it's fascinating, but mindfulness of unwholesome mind states diminishes them and mindfulness of wholesome um, mind states increases them. So working with the full range of the heart's response to, to this world that we live in. And the power from that is that our actions can be so much clearer. They can be based in love and compassion rather than despair and, action, and anger. Deciding um, there can be more clarity about what we need to do in response. And then each of us, it's to figure out what our response is. What does our heart tell us to do? Someone named Norman Thurman said, Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. And then go out and do that. So in a way, it's... it's um, What's our passionate calling in this world? I call my work here as a Dharma teacher environmental activism. Um, And the reason why is because um, all of us, what we do when we meditate is we're getting in touch with this world. We're getting in touch with life. We're getting in touch with reality. And that seems to be the bottom line, to be connected, to be awake, to understand our interconnectedness with all beings. We're going to need, we're going to need this understanding in the uh, decades to come. It's actually one of my biggest equanimity and compassion practices is this question of, of the difficult times that we live in and um, how do we hold that? How do we hold all that we know? We know so much, you know, there's so much information available, so much more perhaps in times past. So how do, we, how do I hold that? And for me, the question sometimes is like, how large can my heart get? 
You know, how much um, can I love this world um, knowing that it's going to change? You know, it's that same question about life, change and love, connection. And I test it. I test my heart to see what the response is. Like, how large can it, can it get? And then with balance, you know, working with what I need for balance to be able to do that. So sometimes we need to protect the heart. Maybe we don't need the news on 24-7. Maybe we don't know, need to know everything all the time. which moves us into the next series of questions. Could you please tell us about the act and practice of bowing and the role in place for devotion? Why is the quality of gratitude not on the wholesome list? More to hear about that. I'd love to hear about devotion, its role in this tradition. How does it fit with practice? My question is about fear. Sometimes I get scared to see impermanence and no self, and I feel very alone and unsafe. I need a place to rest, something comforting to protect me. Hot tea and hot showers help. Can you tell me anything else, since Buddhism doesn't have the view of God? So what holds us? What holds us in this journey? this journey of being in touch with reality, which isn't always so easy. (laughs) It can be kind of intense ride at times, being in touch with reality. And it's not such a short ride either. It takes a while. So cutting through delusion, seeing the truth of change, the depth of change, or the strength of craving... With practice, um, it calls us to go outside our comfort zone. It's actually the only way that we grow is to go outside of our comfort zone. So what sustains us? What holds us? We need something. The heart needs some protection. So one um, question about devotion a little bit. I would say that devotion is where we um, place our hearts. And in this tradition, one common um, practice of devotion is, to, is the refuges, the three refuges, the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, that's in the chant that we do. So placing our heart on, um, in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, whatever they may mean to us. Not necessarily the Buddha as a person, but, but the Buddha as what he represents or means to us. And sometimes when we bow three times, and traditionally when we bow three times, it's to the Buddha, Dhamma, and the Sangha. So for some people, bowing, bowing, there's no um, rules in this tradition, but for some people, bowing is an expression of um, devotion. For others, it's an expression of gratitude. Surrender, it can mean many different things. I feel I'm not, I was thinking when I got this question, I said to the teachers, I'm not such a devotion type. Um, 
but my devotion, if I feel a devotion, I would say that my devotion is to the, um, is to the truth. I feel a, a passion for the truth. And the reason why is because it seems to me that the truth is the only place that um, it feels like we can really rest. Delusion doesn't offer us any ultimate rest. It might offer us some um, temporary um, <laughs> um, calming, but it doesn't give us the rest that our hearts really want. So I feel the strong um, devotion to the truth. And you could say also to ultimate reality as it manifests as perfect love and perfect wisdom. So qualities like devotion and gratitude and metta and um, compassion, I would say that they help protect the heart. Sometimes I think of practice as a slow transformation in what protects our hearts. So we live in this world of change, right? And it's a little bit of a wild ride. (laughs) It's... um, it feels like the heart needs some protection. And without practice, the, the, the typical protections of the heart are greed, hatred, and delusion. That's, what, that's how we try to manage change and to give ourselves some security. And with practice, there's this um, transform, transformation where we begin to take wholesome qualities as our protection for the heart. So qualities like equanimity and wisdom, and love, compassion, gratitude. And so we strengthen these qualities. And at the pace that we strengthen these qualities, then um, we can open more to life as it is. It's often said that the strength of our paramis, so the paramis are... um, um, you know, the ten paramis, generosity, sila, renunciation, patience, metta, wisdom, all of those. It's said that um, the strength of our paramis determines how deep we go in practice. And I heard stories even of Saito Upandita who would tell um, yogis who have been doing a lot of practice, you know, you need to go out and develop your paramis and then come back. It's because the paramis give us the protection to go deep to see things as they are. And so with our hearts strong in these um, wholesome protections, we can let go of the more unwholesome protections of greed, hatred, and delusion. Which brings us to the next set of questions. What is meant by delusion? Sometimes you might not be able to totally tell how I link the questions, but does Buddhism have anything good to say about the self? (laughs) Rebecca and esteemed panel. (laughs) What is Buddhist psychology? What is its aim, focus, and approach? Um... So today a dana offering was made with a note, practice makes perfect, crossed out, practice makes karma. With respect to other spiritual traditions that emphasize, emphasize that anything we do binds us further to, 
quote, the dream, could meditation be viewed as supportive of delusion and seeking? Wrapped in that was a little wrapper from a Dove chocolate, probably the offering. It said, it has a little note, it says, stir your sense of pleasure. <laughs> and then, um, what is, where is the line between a wise skepticism and doubt? And how do we balance a wise skepticism with faith? These are all going to fit together by the end. What's the difference between a chicken? Can you talk a little bit about koans and their use in meditation practice? We have been discouraged from activities such as reading, writing, and internet use, shopping, etc. Why does this matter? How does it affect our practice? Okay, so. (laughs) You're giving it away. Which one do you think the teachers wrote? (laughs) It's going to fit in. You just wait. Um, So the question, let's start, what is delusion? So in Buddhism, delusion is not understanding the way things are. Or even a little more accurately, seeing things as they are not. So think of that word, delusion. Yeah, seeing things as they are not. And basically, there's three things that we misunderstand, that we don't um, see correctly. Anicca, anatta, and dukkha. So we've talked about those a little. I think Greg's going to talk a little more in a few days. Um, But basically, delusion means we see permanence where impermanence is true. We see um, pleasure where dukkha is true. And we see self where not-self is true. And so what practice does is it clears our perception to see things as they are. So we're developing clear seeing or clear perception to see deeply the truths of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Now, Buddhist psychology is a very detailed map of the mind and the heart and the body, reality and absolute reality more, a deep um, map of absolute reality. And um, its aim is to help us understand reality in order to develop wisdom. So wisdom is the opposite of delusion. So developing wisdom leading to freedom of the heart and mind. So it's to help us to cut through delusion. That's what the whole Buddhist psychology is about. And it's a fascinating and very detailed explanation of um, many things, wholesome and unwholesome mind states and which ones arise co-current with each other, an explanation of dependent origination and how conditioning perpetuates suffering or how it can lead to freedom. Some of my talk the other night on how we construct reality comes from Buddhist psychology, um, breaking down um, the sense of of a permanent and separate um, self. Um, There's incredible detail about what a mind moment is and what factors have to be present. 
And what's fascinating is this was all like put together thousands of years ago by people just sitting and looking at their minds. Incredible detail. So it's, I find it inspiring um, as far as like what we can see by, by developing um, a quiet mind. So all of our practice is um, leading to wisdom or dispelling delusion. Sometimes um, delusion manifests as a, a disconnect, so we can't quite get here. You've maybe noticed how difficult it is uh, to get here, to connect. So delusion sometimes manifests as like we live like a slight remove from life or from reality, mostly because we can't stand it, because <laughs> we don't have the, a strong enough heart and mind to actually um, be here. And it's a long road because it takes us a long time to be able to acclimate to, to, to the openness of um, being with things as they are. It's not so easy to be with things as they are. So I want to say a couple words about relative and absolute reality. So on the relative level, there is some sense of permanence, right? So like when you go to breakfast and you put your oatmeal in the bowl, you know, there's relative assurance that by the time you get back to your table, you're still going to have a bowl of oatmeal in your you know, and it's still going to be like you can eat oatmeal, right? So there, there, in relative reality, there is some sense of continuity or, or what looks like permanence, right? And in relative reality, there is some pleasure to life. There are, you know, there's, there's the pleasure of a hot cup of tea. There's the pleasure of the breeze on your face. There's all the sense pleasures, right? They're available, And there is also, on relative reality, there's some sense of self, right? There's, I'm Rebecca, and I have some agency, I have some choice. There's a sense of, um, you know, I know that, you know, that I have to pay the mortgage, things like that, right? So um, that's the relative reality level. The absolute reality level, which we, which is the way we point in practice, we, you know, we have a lot of um, practice um, understanding, you could say, relative reality, but not so much with um, absolute reality. So practice is pointing to more the absolute level of everything is changing all the time. And dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, that nothing is going to satisfy us because it all changes. And that what we te- call ourselves is also this changing process that is deeply interconnected with um, uh, with with all of life. So sometimes we have the sense that like we're going for absolute reality and we're going to throw relative reality out the door and we want to get rid of it. It's not okay. Um, the highest truth is when we can understand both of these levels of reality and live them both. And... and um, you know, respond uh, in the way that is most um, appropriate. 
the absolute reality that we point towards is meant to um, to to free the heart because it's it's meant to lessen the clinging, to teach us to let go, to free the heart, free the heart and the mind. So at times in practice, we might be seeing things on the absolute level more, and it might be too much. We might be going, whoa, um, you know, this is, is a bit too much. We can take refuge in the relative. It hasn't disappeared. It's still here. There was one period in my practice where that was happening. I remember I was sitting in the dining room, and it was like people were walking by, and I'm like, oh, my God, they don't exist. You know, it was like, it was, it was, it was really intense, and um, I was really spinning out in lots of fear. So I started, I was like, okay, it's 1995. This is a bowl of oatmeal. I'm eating this oatmeal. I mean, I like grounded in relative reality. The oatmeal was still there. <laughs> you know, I could still eat it. And so... Um, we can remember that, 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 uh, that it's not like we're trying to get rid of that. It's like we're trying to understand kind of the totality of this world. Hmm. Need to move on. So, um, renunciation on retreat can be in the service of this clear seeing. So we're trying to settle our minds enough that we can um, see clearly what's, what's going on. Uh, so there was that question about um, if, if we're doing a lot, isn't that kind of um, increasing uh, delusion? So there's kind of two kinds of practice. One kind is um, somewhat directive, and we're trying to create favorable conditions. So we might focus on one object and try to stay with that for a while. So there, it's, it's directive, right? And it helps to um, stabilize the mind. And there's a certain amount of manipulation, you could say, going on. And, um, and, and it's good for... for, for um, simplicity of of mind and for stabilizing the mind. And then there's the other kind of practice, which is much more non-directive, where we're opening to whatever is, right? Awareness meets present experience. And um, it's true that too much doing and practice, doing, can obstruct clear seeing. So, for example, if we're trying to be with our breath and we're trying to make it be a certain way and there's um, craving present, that is going to obstruct how we see the breath. It's going to be in the way, you could say. The craving will um, um, uh, change how we perceive the, the breath. So, when we emphasize relaxation and receptivity, that's the more non-directive practice, it helps us to see most clearly. But sometimes we need a combination of the two. So, so there's a way that we might have an anchor and we keep coming back to our anchor, right? But it's done um, in a relaxed manner rather than in, in a manner that's like, oh, I'm going to control my mind now, right? So, so more relaxation, we see more clearly.
So renunciation helps us also with clear seeing. We, we're, we're, we keep pointing towards clear seeing so that we can really understand how this world is so that we can let go and that there's freedom in the heart and mind. So when we're trying to settle the mind, um, simplify the mind, if there's a lot of discursive activity, it um, stirs up the mind. So if um, there's... Um, it's kind of like you're shooting yourself in your own foot if you like do a lot of um, uh, reading or writing or uh, go on the internet and, and buy something or whatever. Um, it's like you've taken two steps forward and one and a half back. So we're in here, we're trying to quiet the mind, um, settle the mind a little bit so we can see clearly what's happening. And then we add um, a lot of turbulence that um, it can be unhelpful. It's like stop-and-go practice, as I think Upandita called it. But that said, sometimes we tell yogis to read. It's actually helpful. In certain cases, it balances the practice. So it's really about what balances our practice. So please, if, if we've suggested that you read, <laughs> don't now go, oh my God, I shouldn't be reading. Because sometimes it actually brings a certain stability for certain yogis to do that. So this is something you can talk about with your teachers. And if, for example, you read a poem before bed and that helps you stay relaxed, that might be okay. But it's really good to look at like what level of simplicity do you have in your practice to support your clear seeing. Balanced with what brings greatest relaxation for you so that you can just be here. So looking at the two sides of that. So then there was a question, I don't know if I read it, I thought I did, but maybe I didn't, about doubt. Doubt and wise um, skepticism. So in our investigation of reality and life and how it is, um, doubt can actually be quite useful or it can be quite paralyzing. So there's two ways it can go. First of all, it's great to doubt everything. You know, bring it all up for review. Doubt can um, move us closer in to um, in investigation. So unwise doubt retreats from investigation. Like too much skeptical questioning can move us away. It's like it can be fear-based and back us off. That's not so helpful. But wise doubt actually moves us towards investigation. It's based in curiosity It says, I wonder about this. I'm not sure. Let me look in my own experience to see. Let me see for myself. One last question.
so all beings will, underlined, so all beings will eventually get fully and liberated, right? Some lifetime or other, I am concerned. (laughs) That's a great question. I love the I am concerned part. (laughs) So um, all beings have the potential to be enlightened. Now the time frame of Buddhism is vast. You know? Munindra... um, Munindraji said, um, practice is timeless. So yes, all beings uh, can be enlightened, but it might take a little while. (laughs) And this dear and precious human life is said to be um, the best realm to do this investigation. So may our practice, may the fruits of all of our investigation and our practice, our commitment to um, developing wisdom and compassion, may the fruits of this practice contribute to the happiness and liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.